Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is an original episode, uh, originally recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. It's on false dichotomy and false dilemma. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined with my father, Jeff Clark. G'day, Dad. How are you? G'day, Theo. And we're looking at false dichotomy and false dilemmas today. And so we will start with reading false dichotomy and then false dilemma from our book, uh, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Thinking. Take it away, Dad. The thing to remember as you're navigating your way through this is that false dichotomy is very commonly written about, but false dilemma is something we invented to suit a number of cases we found. Uh, in the media and so on. So just yep. bear that in mind. False dichotomy or black and white reasoning um, is a common, commonly acknowledged fallacy. And we give this description. The advocate presents an issue as black and white when it is in reality shades of grey. The reasoning put forward is unjustifiably all or nothing rather than subtle and measured. Debates about emotive issues such as euthanasia, GM foods, criminal justice, race relations, etc., are often polarised in this way. Example. During an election campaign, the incumbent Attorney General, Frank Payne, appears on television and makes his case for a review of current censorship laws affecting television broadcasting. He states that the review of laws will be informed by the broad community consultation. The interviewer, Barbara Twining, asks Margot Blarney Pickle, President of the Collective for Smashing of Post-Colonial and Patriarchal Oppression, to comment. She states, There cannot be any censorship imposed by the state. Anyone should be able to hear or see anything they like. Any level of censorship is oppressive. And our comment on that example, Margot is portraying the issue as censorship versus freedom of speech. She is attempting to put one issue up against the other, and she's hoping that her version of the issue prevails in the contest. The flawed belief at the core of this strategy is that censorship is all or nothing. In fact, the degree and nature of censorship, which might be exercised in any society, is subject to multiple variables. It's perfectly reasonable, for example, for standards of what constitutes obscene or violent material to change over time along a continuum. The debate should be about how far along the continuum and in which direction the standards should shift, not on whether standards should be abandoned or raised to a level of complete repression. In the present example, and if Barbara were an effective interviewer, she would challenge Margot on her all-or-nothing stance and either dismiss it as an unworthy contribution to the debate or probe her position with examples which would be problematic for her. For example, she could ask her whether she would be in favour of live broadcasts of executions on free-to-air television or the removal of doors and screens from public toilets. Such challenging examples would be an appropriate use of reducto, reductio ad absurdum by Barbara, Barbara to point out that it would be ludicrous to apply Margot's view without qualification. Such a challenge might provoke Margot and lead to her indignant exit from the debate, but it also would be possible that it would function as a reality check and cause her to modify her position and engage more effectively in the discussion. Either way, whether she leaves or moderates her position, the debate would be more fruitful. 
Many lame commentators, that is capital L-A-M-E, uh, that stands for look at me everybody, are unhappy with ambiguity and complexity. Such individuals prefer to characterise an issue as black or white as they find dealing with nuanced shades of grey difficult and confusing and more often than not a threat to their position. The seeker after truth, on the other hand, should not attempt to oversimplify any issue in order to bring it to a premature or unjustified resolution. It's much more acceptable in principle to decide that an issue has to remain unresolved rather than oversimplifying and drawing the wrong conclusion. So that was false dichotomy, and now we will uh, talk about false dilemma. Right, false dilemma, the other terms we use for that, um, or I've heard used for that, are false linkage of choices or concocted dilemma. And the description we give, this is the error of portraying one choice as necessarily excluding another, even though there is no necessary connection. For example, an advocate might make the following statement. They should solve world poverty before they try to put humans on Mars. While this may sound superficially plausible, the unstated and bizarre assumption is that the advocate believes that if money were not expended on a Mars expedition, that money would be diverted to the, to the alleviation of poverty. This is clearly false. Example. Dr. Harry Oversteer is an epidemiologist with an interest in health statistics. He is having a conversation over dinner with Sally Butt, an old school friend. He remarks that men's health in general is much poorer state than the health of women in general. He points out that on almost all measures of mortality and morbidity, from suicide to heart disease, men fare significantly worse than women. He speculates on whether there should be more health promotion programs targeted specifically at men to address this anomaly. Sally bristles and forcefully states the following, It's taken the better part of a century to have women's health taken seriously by a male-dominated medical profession and public policymakers. If we embark on the course you suggest, women's health will take giant strides backwards. Now comment on that example. What Sally is saying without any evidence or compelling logical reason is that a focus on men's health will necessarily lead to a reduction of health services to women. This is clearly not a sound coupling of events. It's even possible that an increased focus on men's health will lead to better targeted health programs across the board. In the example given, a more reasonable response from Sally might be, I can see the anomaly you pointed out. The issue that needs to be addressed is how men's health outcomes can be improved, while at the same time ensuring that there aren't any adverse effects on women's health. We need a response which is acceptable to the whole community. Sally's error arises from the supposition that there is a fixed health budget and that an increase in disbursement of funds from one group, i.e. men, necessarily results in less resources going to another group. Sally's right to alert Harry to the possibility that an increased health promotion targeting men may lead to diminution of emphasis on women's programs. Her error is in asserting that it definitely will lead to this outcome. Note that increases or decreases in the expenditure of scarce budgetary resources on government programs is a legitimate topic for political debate and social commentary. It's also true that the total cake available for allocation to programs is necessarily limited. At times, increasing budgetary allocations to Program X may have a clear link to a de decrease in budgetary allocations to Program Y. If this is the case, a genuine dilemma may be argued. 
and the benefits of one program can be directly compared and contrasted to the other program. The seeker after truth will be able to distinguish between a false dilemma and a genuine dilemma and will make his or her case accordingly. Okay, so that's false dichotomy and false dilemma, and I suppose it's worth uh, talking about why we specifically talked about a false dilemma as opposed to a false dichotomy. And a false dichotomy is, is basically think about it in terms of black and white thinking, whereas a false dilemma is going to be more in terms of when people argue, well, there's only basically two choices and one choice necessarily excludes the other. And I think that's... I mean, it's one of these things with hindsight, but that's certainly... Uh, the type of view polemicists tend to take these days or media commentators and so on and interviewers and just pundits in general tend to always, when you're talking about uh, a particular issue, they might say, oh, well, if we do this, we can't do the other. And they make this bizarre link, generally speaking, from one issue to the other. And it seems to be a fairly modern kind of thing, as far as I can tell anyway. And we were moved to put it into our book because it's just so commonplace Mm. And we almost erupt into screaming when, a, when a, an in- interviewer who's supposed to be a high-graded journalist uh, takes the sort of guff from their interviewee mm. without asking the obvious question, what is the link? Uh, in, in other words, why is spending money on this scientific uh, project necessarily going to result in a reduction in spending on another scientific project? Um, you just have to ask the question, and, and neither of us could understand why supposedly intelligent people would just take that answer. Yeah. Well, and, and this is an example of why it's good to actually know these terms because the most recent example I've come across and I blogged about it was um, uh, about the Large Hadron Collider and there was an interview uh, with Jeremy Paxman, so he's an English or British um, broadcaster interviewer, uh, with um, Brian Cox, who's a physicist at the Large Hadron Collider, and also David King, who's the chief or former chief scientific advisor in the UK, and King and Paxman set up, well, Paxman set it up as a false dichotomy, um, talking about the whole uh, Large Hadron Collider in the terms of being a false dichotomy, and then King basically went along with his side of the debate and, um, you know, basically turned it, framed it as in, well, we shouldn't be spending money on these kind of navel-gazing projects like the Large Hadron Collider, but we should be doing some crucial research. So he said things like, it's all very well to demonstrate we can land craft on Mars to discover whether there's a Higgs boson, but I'd suggest that we need to pull people towards perhaps bigger challenges where the outcome of civilization is really crucial. And they talked about the fact that, you know, there's billions of dollars being spent on the Large Hadron Collider, but relatively speaking, it's extremely cheap. I mean, and, and it's, it's interesting, they always pick things that are in the same kind of field, but why pick on just because there's money being spent on this scientific project, why not pick on the Olympics or something like that? The Olympics is, you know, we're talking about $42 billion just on the um, Beijing Olympic Games. So why pick on the $10 billion, $10 billion Large Hadron Collider if you're talking about these kind of projects? And so it's very, very bizarre to me that, that they don't just think to themselves, well, why am I picking on this one in, in the first place anyway? Let alone the fact that it's obviously a false dilemma. You just because you're spending money on one doesn't necessarily exclude you're going to spend money on the other. But, look, I'll play the, um, the bit of that interview now so you can hear what I'm talking about, and then we'll discuss it further. So this is Jeremy Paxton uh, interviewing Brian Cox and Sir David King on the Large Hadron Collider. 
Large Hadron Collider, apologies for calling it the Hadron Collider the other night, pure ignorance, is massive in every sense, not least in cost. Over three years, it'll cost £4.4 billion. Question, is it money well spent? It's a very pedestrian name for an instrument which some mercifully deluded people claim could create a black hole which would end the world. But the biggest machine ever built has caught the public imagination, even if most of us can't define precisely what it's doing. We can gawp at the price tag, though. These ambitious projects to tackle some of the biggest questions of our age, who we are, where we come from, where we're going, the space race, for example, which set our sights beyond Earth, the Human Genome Project, which promises a revolution in understanding and treating disease, cost, and they cost big. Scientists at the European Centre for Nuclear Research say the Large Hadron Collider experiment allows them to recreate conditions that existed when the universe was a fraction of a second old. But couldn't the $10 billion have been better spent on more down-to-earth pursuits like finding a cure for cancer or stopping climate change? Well, with us now, the government's former chief scientific advisor, Sir David King, and Professor Brian Cox, who's just off the plane from CERN. What was the point of spending the money on this as opposed to something useful? Well, I would obviously argue with the question. This, you, you have to put CERN in its context. This is part of a, this is part of a, a, a journey that we've been on for about 100 years to understand what are the building blocks of matter and what are the forces that stick them together. This journey has given us, for example, the transistor, the silicon chip, it's given us, uh, you mentioned cures for cancer, it's given us uh, the ability to use particle beams to cure cancer, to potentially kill brain tumours. There's an endless list. I mean, I would argue, in fact, the modern world has been invented as a result of this quest, and this is the next step. In an ideal world, of course, there'd be enough money to research whatever you wanted. But, given we're not in an ideal world, was this money well spent? This money was spent on curiosity-driven research, which yes. may conceivably have some impacts on our well-being in the future. I suspect it won't. I think we've probably driven this type of research far enough that it's now more naval searching than uh, searching for potential future developments for the benefit of mankind. So uh, I'm fascinated, thrilled by the potential of finding the Higgs boson. I think it's wonderful science. But at the same time, I'm a little astonished to find we, we know so much about fundamental particles. The Large Hadron Collider is going to demonstrate whether or not there's a Higgs boson. But I'm worried about whether we can convert enough energy from sunlight to solve our global warming problem, whether malaria, HIV, AIDS could be tackled. There's so, a big disparity. So you say decide upon investment on the basis of what the possible out or likely outcome will be search for a particular thing like for example climate change solutions yes I, I mean that is what I'm saying because I think we're faced with the biggest challenge our civilization has ever had that is alternatives to carbon energy Do you know with, with respect I think it's, I think that argument just doesn't hold water because you could have made it at any point in the past and at every stage of this journey to understand how the universe works the, the, the spin-off technologies and the knowledge that we've gained have proved sure. to be immensely valuable and you can never predict, no one is clever enough to predict where but, the next but wonderful cares? discovery is um, going to come from. Yeah, how the uni universe was formed, if the Earth ceases to have much 
intelligent life well, upon a Absolutely. So you could look at the, the, the latest spin-off from CERN, which is the ability to cool the thing down. The, the thing runs, actually, as one of the coldest places in the universe. That technology is being used now at the ITER fusion reactor in France to, to cool that thing down. It came from CERN. The expertise came from CERN. Fusion is a power source of the future. You can never that tell. That is a possibility, isn't it? It is, but I think there's another argument. Um, brilliant people like this young man sitting next to me also need to be attracted into these other uh, uh, challenges that we're faced with, where the outcome can be directly I, I, productive. I've just explained that, that we are attractive. Spending no, no. all this money no. makes it too no, no, You don't work on one thing. I, for, for me, myself, I work at uh, the Cockcroft Acceleration Institute up at the Daresbury Lab. All the scientists that work at CERN are also working on particle beam therapies for cancer because it's part of the same endeavour, it's part of the same expertise. So you can't, you can't say to people like me, for example, 20 years ago when I went into physics, well, why don't you just do this because it's rather useful. In fact, learning how the universe works is useful, is inspiring. And on this day, actually, the day when, for once, physics is part of culture, it's in the headlines at every newspaper, every news broadcast in the world. I don't think the president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science should be pouring cold water on that on this day of all. Okay, so that was Jeremy Paxman uh, and talking about the Large Hadron Collider with Brian Cox and Sir David King and the bizarre thing to me is this guy is the chief scientist and he and he's should be arguing well just more money should be spent on science not that oh you shouldn't be doing one instead of the other that's the thing i find really strange that a scientist would not be just simply saying hey you should just spend more money on science full stop it's easy to slip into that mode of reasoning yourself too i'll give you an example from my own experience when you look at the threats facing the earth and continued existence, um, there's now a fairly broad consensus that um, there's anthropogenic global warming and there's a lot of actions taking place to deal with that. Um, in my own mind, since reading some books, uh, now I can't remember the authors, but um, the people that... Um, uh, Shoemaker-Levy that um, mm. uh, put the, gave their name to the comet that struck Jupiter... Um, it's a very small chance, but nevertheless, if, if a near-Earth object um, of, of great size, say three kilometres across, smashed into the Earth, it, it would be the total end of all life as we know it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the risk is very small, but it's worthwhile spending money um, because it's so catastrophic. It That's is so right, catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. Now, so, sometimes I find my own reasoning going that way. I think... Well, there's all this money being spent on um, modelling climate mm. um, and there's, as far as I know, very little money being spent on tracking near-Earth objects and not, not, not just tracking them but also working out or modelling a way that they could be diverted if they were in a collision course with Earth. So I, I have to check myself sometimes and say, well, you can spend money on both. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. You don't have to necessarily steal money from one I think the, the, the best argument is not about the money per se, it's about the actual resources and the people involved because that is definitely in limited... I mean, money's in limited supply too, but 
the people especially are definitely limited. There's any certain number of scientists in particular fields. And, and so King's argument that almost holds weight is when he talks about, well, you've got particular scientists working on, why don't you get the best brains working on the, you know, climate change or solar cells and things like that, or, you know, on near-Earth objects. And, and my argument against that is not that you don't get the best brains. A, well, that's kind of insulting to the people already working on it, but B, you let scientists do what interests them. You let people in general work on what's interested in it. So it's a fairly libertarian view, but that's how I think. You know, you don't let state, the state dictate to people what they do. You let people's interests and passion drive them because then they, you get the best work out of them. And so if you, to get the best results, that's what you do. And, of course, a crap load of money is being spent on these issues at the moment anyway. I mean, if you want to get a grant in something in science, you related to climate change, you're going to get some money. I mean, it's it's... It's a, it's a given that if your research has anything to do with climate change or anything to do with the impacts on it or new technology, you're going to get some money. Yeah, the other, the other one I talked about recently was, um, well, not recently, but a couple of years ago, was about the Cyclone Larry. Um, and it was a cyclone that hit the east coast of Australia, and it didn't actually kill anyone, but it did a lot of damage. And people who wrote in um, uh, comments to newspapers... And this is the example, of, uh, I think, of us saying that this is such a, a common thing that people um, get stuck into this way of thinking. And some of the letters were things like, Well done, Prime Minister Howard. The battered and bruised people of North Queensland welcome your offer of assistance in their time of need. However, your government was much more generous with taxpayers' money to the people of Indonesia when disaster struck there. Open the, bludging per the bulging purse strings, Mr Howard. The well-being of Australia must overrule previous commitments to offshore grants. We must take care of our own. And then we've got another one. You know, where's the billion-dollar donation for the victims, John Howard? Shame on you. And there's another one. Tonight on the news, I saw people of Innisfail, which is the city that got the town that got hit them the hardest, at the end of their tether. Families were standing on the street waiting for handouts, which were a long time coming. Funnily, I remember the tsunami victims in Indonesia getting quicker response from our aid agencies and governments uh, than our own countrymen. Yeah, I, th I think because it's used so often and never questioned, and I think... Um I blame the professional, the profession of journalism, for um, the widespread lack of critical thinking mm. in the community. Because if you had a few journalists out there that were following up answers by pointing out these absurdities um, as as part of their interrogation of the of the person they're talking to, um, the general population would have, be much more sensitive and aware of these sorts of things. Yep. I mean, I. I happened to travel through Sri Lanka a couple of m months after the uh, tidal wave hit there, and the coastal areas were were utterly and totally de devastated. And uh, the other thing that happened was the tidal waves waves brought in um, salt water, mm. and so not only were they devastated, but their crops they couldn't simply can't grow crops yep. uh, for kilometres inland because the um, the water is salt. And yep, so right. nothing, nothing grows, and uh, th they're destitute and, and, and lack any kind of um, infrastructure mm. that, that can deal with that sort of thing. But I just always think it's funny in terms of the false dilemma, the false linkage too. Like, why pick on a disaster? Why not pick on the war in Iraq or something like that? Like, like that, you, that money is just money. So why pick on something that's yeah, similar? Yeah, you can pick on yeah. anything you want. It's just, that's the kind of bizarre link people tend to make. Yeah. Um, I think. The last thing we'll talk about in terms of that is go back to false dichotomy. And 
my favourite and your favourite, I believe, false dichotomy is that in terms of politics these days, we've got the supposed left-wing and right-wing uh, views. But, I mean, if you look at most political parties and their viewpoints, they're all pretty centrist. A lot of people recognise that fact. But it's almost like they have to um, set up a false dichotomy to make themselves look different from one another. Yeah, and I think um, often people on the right, for example... Uh um, will mock um, the tendency of people on the left, you know, marginally on the left, marginally mm. on the right, uh, by calling themselves right-wing death beasts, RW, whatever, right-wing death beasts, because they're kind of mocking that positioning of them um, as necessarily uh, being cold-hearted and unsympathetic and so on. And yet, if you look at the, the reason why politics works in the West is precisely that there's hardly any difference between the parties, and so when a party wins, there aren't riots, um, generally speaking. That's right, Because yep. the policies of the parties are so close that even the people that lose a particular mm. election uh, are not going to find a, a, a dr- drastic and dramatic change to their lives affected as a result of that election win. So yeah, exactly right. If politics are too far apart from the centre as they are in some countries, um, that's when the losers get really disaffected and tend to riot and yeah. carry on like that. Well, I think, I think it's a sign of a healthy democracy that you've just got two fairly centrist parties that are the main parties, and they just randomly change hands about every decade. And, and Theo, something just occurs to me, I can't swear to it, but it's, it's maybe too big a coincidence, but in the Western democracies, for a long time, we've only had dorks Mm. standing uh, as the major figure for their particular party. So maybe there's something important there. About that, yeah. Well, when you compare that that to, say, Russia. Yeah. See, see, to give a concrete example, if if I were assaulted by either um, Kevin Rudd or John Howard, and I didn't know them, Mm. and and they were in a line-up, um, and I had to pick them out, I'm not sure which... (laughs) Whether I can pick out the right, pick out the right one because they're both. It's reassuring to have a dork in charge, you know. It's it's kind of reassuring because you know that the professionals are getting on with doing the job, you know, the That's behind right, the yeah. scenes, and the dork can't do much, too much harm. <laughs> Yeah, that's that might be peculiar to Australia and Britain, but I can think of because the US is a bit different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But I won't won't go and make any more political comments. But yeah, um, all right. So last of all, a bit of Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. The guilty pleasures of humbug. My uh, favourite version of schadenfreude sort of is to actually accuse someone of um, black and white thinking if I'm debating somebody. So I'll actually say to them, oh, well, you've just got yes. black and white thinking. It's obviously a little bit too subtle for your brain to cope with. Um, yeah, so yeah. it's a bit of a personal attack as well. But that, that tends to work a treat in the middle of a debate because it gets, makes them stop and, and, and rethink what they've been saying, even if what they've been saying is perfectly legitimate. And uh, Well, I think I've said it before, but the, the thing that I find to be really um, enjoyable is where it's getting fairly intense, and then and then I look puzzled at the other person's anger, mm. and I, and I say, didn't you get the joke in there? You know, like mm. uh, I now I implied that I put in a really good, funny ha ha joke yep. into, into the conversation about five minutes ago, and they they didn't spot it. 
and and uh, you can actually watch. I, I I like doing things where you can kind of imagine the synapses mm. shorting out, shorting out. Uh, yeah, and, well, and, and and you can see their eyes roll up to the right as they try and think back. Well, my version and, and of exactly that. And you just shake your that. head and go. Yeah, disgust. My know. version of exactly that with a false dichotomy or false dilemma is going. Oh, I just don't think you've considered it from the other side, and then just don't say anything else. Yeah, because that just leaves them scratching their head. Yeah, and unless they, a lot of the time people aren't prepared to actually call you on that because they think, oh, they'll think I'm stupid for not knowing what what he's talking about straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. that's that's probably coming through as one of our themes is to leave them confused, dazed and confused by the end of a conversation with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, well, that was False Dilemma and False Dichotomy. And you've been listening to Hunting Humbug 101. You can subscribe to us via the the website, and you can also um, download it uh, through an RSS feed like iTunes or something like that. And if if you've come across a fallacy, you think, uh, you know, if you've read the book or you've had a look at... um, the website, and you, you think you've come across a fallacy that's not represented there, um, feel free to email us too. Yep. We'll, we'll set that up. So because the website, I, you we, can... We find you, comments um, too, too time-consuming and yep. too much off the topic most of the time, whereas we do welcome emails and we can screen those, and if there's some good idea comes up, We'll attribute it and uh, yep. follow it up ourselves. And you can find a link by clicking on our profiles on the website and you'll find links to our emails there. Okay, until next week, you've been listening to Hunting Humbug 101. So that was the original episode on False Dichotomy and False Dilemma. As I said in the introduction, we also received some feedback, so let's have a listen to uh, the episode where we dealt with the feedback now. So we've got some feedback on uh, the the site for the podcast um, from a uh, someone who's been listening to the podcast. Um, I'll try and say their handle, but it's um, Shram Shram Nakorov, um, and had been listening to our podcast uh, number six, uh, which was about false dichotomy and false dilemma. And I'll just read out his comment or her comment. I'm going to go. I'm going to because uh, I don't not sure if it's a male or female, but. Um, says, as an American, I got a dose of culture shock at about two minutes in when reading from your book. You give an example of someone saying that the government has no business censoring anything and that any censorship is oppressive. You seem to claim that the argument should be about how much censorship to have, not whether to scrap it entirely. As someone who basically agrees with your Margot Blaney pickle, I take issue with this. As someone who basically, um, sorry, I take issue with this, more censorship is more oppressive, but any amount of censorship is indeed oppressive. This is not an unusual view around here. Heck, it's written in the US Constitution that the government isn't allowed to censor anything. You then go on to suggest that Margot be ridiculed with straw men. Uh, and he's quoting there here, or he or she is quoting here. Are you in favour of live broadcaster executions? Well, I'm not in favour of executions, but if you've got the film, it shouldn't be illegal to show it. I mean, are you going to outlaw everything that's in bad taste? Another quote from the book, do you favour the removal of doors from public toilets? WTF? Of course not. That's a false analogy. Censorship isn't allowing toilets to have doors, it's legally requiring every toilet to have a door. If I want to build a doorless toilet, it shouldn't be illegal. I probably shouldn't expect many people to buy one or use one, but censorship is making it illegal to have or use one. 
uh, and then he gives some um, some links to um, some different uh, sources and free speech um, organisations, um, and then goes on just to say uh, that. A, my email and my profile doesn't work, which I've now fixed, so thank you for pointing that out. And also says, um, PPS, I've been enjoying your podcast, except this one bit which pushed a button for me. Keep up the good work. So we'll just have a quick general um, response to that because there were some interesting points there raised, and thanks for the feedback and keep coming in um, and keep listening. Uh, first of all, the examples in the book are necessarily caricatured a lot of the time just because to make them pretty obvious what we're talking about. So you can't always give the real subtle examples. So that's just one, and, and also just to be f- mildly amusing as well. But um, we'll just go on and talk about a couple of the specific points you raised. Um, the first thing you said was you give an example of someone saying that the government has no business of censoring anything and so on and about censorship being more oppressive and any censorship is oppressive. Well, and then you talk about the US Constitution, you know, the government not being allowed to censor anything. Well, I'm no expert on the American Constitution, but, for example, the wardrobe malfunction that happened with uh, Justin Timberlake and, uh, what's-her-face, um, Janet Jackson at the Super Bowl, where he accidentally, inverted commas, pulled off her top and showed a breast. Now, you know, straight away there's an example of, of the... You do have censorship in the US, whether it's in the Constitution or not, and so it's simply... The, the a matter of fact that there is some levels of censorship that a society votes upon. It's not black or white. It's not either you censor everything or you don't censor anything. It's it's there's a continuum, which is what I thought the point was. We're trying to get across is a false dichotomy to say that it's either you do censor or don't censor stuff. It's just simply a false dichotomy. There is a continuum of censorship. Different circumstances have different levels of censorship. I, I think the the clearest um, way of putting it, in, in from my point of view, is to say the U.S. Constitution on that matter, presumably didn't change at any time during the 20th century. So from 1901 to 2000, the US Constitution um, uh, concerning censorship didn't change. Yep. But uh, what was um, allowed to be seen by adults or children... Has changed. ...in their homes or in theatres certainly changed uh, dramatically through that period. So... Um, that's that's evidence that um, it's not a black or white uh, mm, yep. issue, and that's the point that I was making. That um, uh, that simply to say censorship is oppressive and yep. leave it at that, and use that as an argument mm. for never uh, prohibiting the showing of um, violence or sexual. Um, um, Imagery and so yeah. on in, in any circumstance is just ridiculous. Both Theo and I have been teachers in secondary yeah. schools. Now, we weren't censored as far as our viewing of um, images uh, freely available in Australia at mm. that time, but certainly if we showed those images to students in our classes, uh, we would rightly be... Yeah. Um, uh, sacked from Hang the school. On. I just got to qualify something there. We didn't actually watch any of those things you oh, might no, be thinking no. of. We could have. People told me they were available. Yeah. We, I we, chose not to watch We them. could have if we'd wanted to, but as we've got to be clear about what we're talking about as, there. As a matter of fact, I was told about their existence yeah. from my students yeah. in my class. But... <laughs> It was okay for them to show me, but of course I didn't. <laughs> no, shit. <laughs> you should stop speaking now. <laughs> now. Now, wait a minute. I've got to think about yeah. how to put this. Um, if I had a picture of a naked lady and I was an art teacher, uh, I could use it in my classes because it had a place there if I was teaching them uh, life drawing. 
So that's where I went wrong. Yeah. So, oh, science is your anatomy. It's okay. That, that's right. But <laughs> if, if, if I showed them in a maths class uh, in order to get them to count the toes uh, to do some mathematics, uh, probably I'd get into trouble for that. So <laughs> it's not... Uh, Why would you show them so they could learn to count to two? <laughs> the, the, the other thing is um, the, the government, in inverted commas, is not monolithic. Mm. Uh, the government is instructed by the population. That's right, yeah. You get the government you vote what, for. What to do. Yeah. Uh, you can change the government in a democracy after a certain period of time and instruct them to do something yeah. else, in effect, uh, through, through a sort of not direct process, but certainly through, uh, a, you know, a party could yeah. stand on a platform of cleaning up the um, uh, free-to-air television between 7 and 9pm. Or vice versa. They could stand on a platform saying we... The censorship's too strong. This government's too conservative. We need to um, do that. So yeah, that's exactly right. And that, and going back to that oppression thing, the other point is, it's also oppressive to live in a world where, as a parent or a teacher, we have to censor everything ourselves. So if if we have to, if if people people say, oh, where's the personal responsibility? But if as a parent and a teacher, you are the person who's responsible for censoring everything, that's a horrible relationship to have to have with your children and so on all the time. If if it's completely up to you to do all the censoring and so that's one of the reasons you have uh you know things like you know you can your kids can watch tv at six o'clock because there's not going to be anything dodgy that's on you can buy you know net nannies to put on your computer that's a personal choice but the government has a responsibility to a point to also look after its citizens because some people don't know what's best for them one of the biggest problems going through schools at the moment uh is freely available hardcore pornography and that students can get it and share it. And it's really going to become a massive problem. It's becoming bigger and bigger all the time. I don't have a solution for what to do about it. And I'm certainly not for just a blanket, just, um, you know, filtering and, and censoring because that might cause more tro- problems than it's worth. But you can't just have everything freely available and leave it up to individuals to choose because individuals aren't necessarily capable of making those kind of decisions that are best themselves. And parents aren't in a position to be able to monitor their kids all the time and even if they were you don't want to have to do that as a parent because that puts a, it's an unhealthy relationship and, and, and see if i can just add it's going to get more and more difficult as technology improves so yep. we have high definition tv uh dvds and so on but what about when we get feelies <laughs> when you can put a skull cap on oh, i'm looking forward to that day <laughs> yes but that's right for you but what no about no your... i won't leave the house either it'll be bad just for me <laughs> but, but what about your grandchild that's right yeah, yeah that's right yeah and and the other thing you, you go on to say is that um you go on to suggest that margot be ridiculed with straw men are you in favor of live broadcast of executions and all that kind of stuff well that's not really a straw man what the, the point of that there was we chose those deliberately absurd examples and actually said it's using um, reductio ad absurdum where you actually pick some extreme and absurd examples that even that person would agree is extreme and absurd and then you can say to them, okay, well, there are some cases where you think censorship is appropriate, which means it's not black and white. So as soon as you can show that, and I've sure, got no, no doubt that I could talk to you about cases where there would be um, an example you think would be appropriate to censor and therefore you agree it's not black and white. Now, People might have different um, grey areas, and their the line for for what's acceptable and what's unacceptable is different positions. But it is a continuum, and that that's the point I think we're trying to make with that example is that it's not either or. There's a continuum of different levels of censorship that could may or may not be acceptable. It's not always about sex either. I mean, the thing is that I've always thought Paris Hilton should be banned. 
long before she had uh, clothing malfunctions and was involved in uh, some degree of exposure. That's right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we should censure morons. No, we can vote yeah. on that one. Yeah, we, you and I could choose. Um, but the other, the, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's the other thing too. And one, the, probably the best thing I think you said in your email, besides telling us how great we are, um, is that, you know, the point that you made about censorship isn't allowing toilets to have doors, it's legally requiring every toilet to have a door and so on. And, and I said that, that's a pretty good way of spinning that argument. But, but let's say the door was broken off a public toilet and someone decided to use it. Let's say they decided to do it in, a, in the middle of a park where there's kids playing around. Now, should they be arrested or not? I, for one, would say probably, yeah, because we know there's kind of a social etiquette and so that freedom of expression doesn't go to, you know, being able to urinate in public and so on. We have those kind of laws where to protect people who can't protect themselves. And so there is that kind of, again, it's just not simply black and white. Um, I want to be able to go to a park even if the toilet door is broken or there's no toilet door where I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, people exposing themselves to my kid and... And I shouldn't have to be the one who has to deal with that all the time. There should be laws in place that back me up. Now, the majority of people might disagree with me, and that's when we have elections and we have political parties, as we were talking about before, because you get the government that you voted for, and that's the the point in a modern liberal democracy where we can vote those people out freely in free elections. Then it's just not really ever going to be a problem. Oh, can I can I just one comment I'll make? Um, just just something which occurred to me. Um uh, because it is an issue that comes up constantly and there's, there's reliably a newspaper article on it every year, um, and that's breastfeeding in public. Now, um, it's, there's an interesting anomaly here because um, women, uh, rightly in my view, um, want the right to be able to breastfeed wherever they are when the child needs it, so if they're out shopping and that kind of stuff, uh, rightly in my view... Um, you know, they uh, because breast milk is a health issue and so on. Um, and rightly, in my view, the, the the decorum these days is for people to not uh, look at, uh, you know, stare at the breastfeeding and so on, but just to go on with normal conversation. Or if it's a stranger walking past, but it, it's it's quite within the realms of possibility if, if a woman is breastfeeding in public that a male stranger, for example, in a nearby um, table in a cafe, could actually stare at the process. Now, the woman is experiencing a degree of discomfort as a result of that, no doubt, um, and yet, you know, is the offence being committed? Um, I, I don't know, but again, even leaving aside the government, um, it, it might be appropriate for the proprietor of that uh, cafe to ask the the fellow to move on. Um, and so it's that level of negotiation, um, social norms, uh, this sort of thing, breast, breastfeeding in public wouldn't have happened perhaps That's right, yeah. 30 years ago. So social norms change and people's behaviour is expected to change. Yeah. And it may not be the monolithic government that gets involved, it's just it maybe just yeah, people the social locally. discourse, the zeitgeist, the spirit yeah. of the times. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yeah, and just let me finish on one thing there too. I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Voltaire or someone like that. But he said, "I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the right your um, ability to say it. De- defend to the death your ability to say it." I think it was Voltaire. Yeah, it was Voltaire. Um, and and I look, I totally agree with that. I I would always err on the side of let people say whatever and let us freely ridicule them as they deserve. Let give them give them enough rope and let them hang themselves. But 
that doesn't mean I'd let let anything go anywhere at any time. That means you you take each individual thing on its own merit. You look at it, who's it going to affect? You look at the consequences of doing that. But it's just not a black and white thing. But if I was forced to err on the side of caution, my side of caution is to generally let people have their ability to say it as long as we all have the ability to ridicule them when they're saying something obviously stupid. Thanks for that. So that was the original episode on false dichotomy and false dilemma. In the next uh, episode of Hunting Humbug 101, we should be back with some original material, looking at a couple of different uh, examples of flawed reasoning. As a reminder, if you'd like to purchase a copy of the book uh, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide, it's on the website www.skepticsfieldguide.net. It's available in... um, it's on the website www.skepticsfieldguide.net. It's available in ebook form on multiple platforms just for the low, low price of $4. Uh, if you'd like to send any comments or emails, you can always uh, contact me on Twitter at Theo J. Clark or send an email to theo.clark at skepticsfieldguide.net.